This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Daniel chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me in your Bible, you're going to want to follow along in a Bible today. Um, and if you, I hope you bring your Bible with you to church, because here's some verses that you want to highlight, you want to underline, you want to just make sure that you have there uh, marked and, and ready to refer to in your scripture. We are, for our guests, we're in a series called Kingdom Come. Are you ready? And um, we kind of last week we took a week off from it as Alex McFarlane came and spoke to us about Christianity and Islam. Did you appreciate Alex last week? Yeah. Did a great job, yeah. And um, and that's on the podcast. If for some reason you missed it, you can go on our podcast on our website and listen uh, to Alex's message. Um, but we're in in a um, series dealing with the end times events. What does God's word say about the future of the world and, and what's going to take place? So we're, uh, we're in the third message. Uh, we'll skip next Sunday because we're doing Mother's Day, and then we'll pick back up for two or three more weeks after that. Get us into summer. I'm excited about the summer, by the way. We're doing a series this summer, going to take us all through the summer, called Who Told You That? And about a lot of things that people say, well, it does say in the Bible, and they'll quote something, and, and you say, well, where did you, in the world did you hear that? You know, because it doesn't say that in the Bible. That's not what, the, and so we're going to use that as an opportunity to teach some doctrine this summer and uh, about what God's word really does say. Now, you probably know about Daniel in the Old Testament. Several years ago, we did a series here on the life of Daniel. And, and what we know about Daniel, most of us, we can remember from when we were children, going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, you know, the stories of, of, of Daniel in the lion's den and the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the fiery furnace, um, the, the handwriting on the wall, um, the last night of uh, Belshazzar's reign, and, and a lot of neat stories in, in Daniel. Uh, Daniel was a teenager, when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took many of the citizens from Jerusalem captive back to Babylon to be slaves. And Daniel was one of those slaves. Now, we're we're pretty familiar with the first half of the book, and it's kind of divided in two. The first half in the book is about all those great stories that we remember. The second half of the book of Daniel, however, is, a, is about prophecy and prophetic visions that he received from God about the future of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, and the coming of the Antichrist. So Daniel talks about all those things, and there are great parallels between Daniel and the book of Revelation, a lot of similarities between the two. One particularly interesting prophetic uh, vision that Daniel had uh, is recorded in Daniel chapter 9, where we're going to look at this morning. Uh, while he was, Daniel says, while I was praying, I was having a time of prayer, the angel Gabriel came and appeared to him. God used Gabriel on several occasions in the Bible to tell people things. And Gabriel shows up, Angels, are, his kind of angel was a messenger. He appeared to Daniel to give him a message from God. And he was told that God was giving the world a period of 70 weeks. Actually, 70 weeks of years, or a total of 490 years. Look with me at Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 24. Here's, this is what uh, Gabriel told him. 70 weeks are decreed 
about your people and your holy city. So let's just stop and say, Daniel's people are the Jews and Daniel's holy city is Jerusalem, all right? This, this vision is about primarily the Jews and Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are decreed to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The most holy place is the temple. That was the most holy place in Jerusalem. The most holy place. After that 70th week, a major change would happen. And he says here, here's what would happen. The bullet points are right there in the verse. Rebellion and sin would stop. Everlasting righteousness would take place. It would be the anointing of the most holy place. By the way, the temple is not there right now. All that remains is a wall. You've seen pictures of the wailing wall where the Jews come and, and they pray and they put write prayers out on cards and stick them between the stones. That's all that remains because the temple was destroyed in the year AD 70 by the Romans. Then Daniel's given an amazing prediction of the coming Christ, of the Messiah. Verse 25, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, if you're a math major in college, you got this figured out, all right. Seven weeks and 62 weeks equals 69 weeks. Until the decree is issued and Messiah comes, after the decree, there will be this period of time. Seven weeks, 49 years. By the way, that would be the time that it would take to rebuild Jerusalem, which was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed pretty much. And you know the story, if you know the story of Nehemiah, it's a, that's about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Take 49 years total to do this. And this countdown, Daniel is told, starts with the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. This is all prophetic. This has not happened yet in Daniel's life. But we know historically that that decree came from the Persian king Artaxerxes in the year 445 BC, and that story is found in Nebuchadnezzar—excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight. An interesting Bible fact is when the Bible speaks of prophetic years. When the Bible speaks of when things will happen, prophetic years scripturally are 360-day years. Not 365, but 360 days. They had different calendars and so forth, but prophetic years, 360-day years. And that started, you can, and where did you, how do you find that? That goes back to the story of the flood in Genesis and continues into John's writing of the Revelation. 360 days, day years or 12 30-day months. Now, we're doing a lot of math here. We're going to run through a lot of stuff here today. So if you're, you don't, if you're not focused, you're going to go, what in the world? All right, because we're going to fly today. 360-day, 12, 30-day months. In 1881, 150 years ago or so, maybe not that full, that long, but I'm not a math major. But in 1881, a scholar in England, a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, sat down without a calculator or computer, just with pen and paper, and he figured out, based on the start of the 70 weeks being the historical date when the issue was decreed by Artaxerxes, we know that date was April the 14th, 
445, and then using a 360-day year and allowing for things like leap years, errors in the calendar, the change from B.C. to A.D. You know, there is a year called zero. The change, and he figured all those things together, figured that the 69 weeks ended on the same day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and was hailed as the Messiah. And and, and Anderson calculated that date to be April 6th, A.D. 32. And that was the prophecy until Messiah the Prince comes. Remember on Palm Sunday, they were proclaiming Jesus as who? The son of David. You're the Messiah. That was the day, April 6th, A.D. 32. But look at verse 26, the first part of verse 26. And after those 62 weeks, we've already had seven weeks that it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Then we have 62 weeks. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah, or I think that's 438 years, something like that, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. Messiah comes, he's introduced as Messiah, then he says he will be cut off and having nothing. Christ was crucified. You know the story five days later. And, and what did he leave behind in possessions? Anybody recall what Jesus left behind in, in, in earthly possessions? One thing. And the Roman soldiers gambled for it. It was his robe. It was his robe. That's all. Leaving, having nothing. He will be cut off. A robe. That was it. But there's a second prince in this prophecy. The rest of verse 26 says, The people of the coming prince, not Messiah, the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. They're going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. In the year A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple, was destroyed along with the city. Remember Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. He was talking about what would happen some 37, 38 years later when Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The prophecy was about a coming prince and his people. So so Titus wasn't the coming prince. He was just a Roman general, but he and his army were the people of the coming prince. Now, the prophecy goes on to say in verse 26 of a flood, then the end will come with a flood and there will be war. And until the end, excuse me, there will be war and desolations are decreed. Whether it means the city was leveled as if by a flood, which it was, or, or that from the time, that time on, the Holy Land will be flooded with war, which it has been. Not sure exactly what the flood means there, but it could be either one of those. And then verse 27 talks about this coming prince. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, one week being seven years. Firm covenant with many, not with all, but with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, now again, go back and who is this prophecy speaking to Daniel about? Who are the many who will make this covenant with him. He's talking about the Jews, and he's talking about Jerusalem. He'll make a firm covenant with them for one week. But in the middle of the week, you divide seven and two, and what do you get? Three and a half. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. He will stop the Jews' ability to practice their faith. And the abomination of desolation 
will be on, the, on a wing of the temple until the dis, de, decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. He'll make a covenant. He'll make an agreement, contract, peace, treaty with the nation of Israel and perhaps others in the world who align with Israel, a seven-year peace agreement. And this will be the final week of the 70 weeks. But in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, it says this prince will break the agreement and wreak havoc on Israel until he is destroyed. It's important to understand these 70 weeks that Daniel talks about. Why do we have to go through? Why is this important? It's important because the rest of the Bible's prophetic writings, whether the Old Testament prophets, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Paul and Peter, especially John's vision and revelation in chapters 6 through 19, they all expound on this. This becomes the, the, the diving board, the platform from which they go on these 70 weeks. And it's all intertwined. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 4, uh, 24, 21, he said, for at that time, time that Daniel was speaking of, that Gabriel told him about, for at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and will never, never will again. He said it'd be the worst time in the world's history. Jeremiah wrote in verse 7 of chapter 30, how awful that day will be. There will be none like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, which is Israel, but he, Israel, will be delivered out of it. Daniel 12, 1, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since nations came into being until that time. And over again, the Bible prophets say this is going to be bad, bad news. A horrible, horrific time on this earth. What do we know about the Great Tribulation? What are some facts that we know about this period of time, this 70th week, these seven years of tribulation? Let me give you a bunch of bullet points. We're not going to have time to read the scriptures, but you've got them there. I hope you'll go back and look them up. First, it will be a time of God's judgment on the nations. God's, God's going to judge, pour out his wrath, if you will, on the nations of this world. Isaiah 26 Isaiah 34, Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. It starts with a time of peace orchestrated by a world leader, the coming prince. Let me say it starts, my belief is it starts as soon as the church, the Christians, the, uh, the family of Christ have been snatched away, have been removed from this world, then this leader will step forward and bring a time of peace on this earth. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Peace will turn to war, however, and great loss of life. Again, Revelation 6. War will be followed by famine and unimaginable inflation. A measure of wheat for a penny, Revelation says. It's going to, you think gas and stuff is expensive now. You think a gallon of milk costs a lot now. Wait until then because there's going to be this great famine in the world and food is going to be scarce. Inflation is going to go out of this world in, uh, in its rate. Revelation 6 verses 7 and 8 tells us that a quarter of the earth's population will die. One-fourth of every man, woman, and child on this earth will die, either by war, they'll be killed in war, or by starvation, or by disease and plague, and by the starving wildlife who are looking for something to eat. That's all spelled out for us there in Revelation 6. Many, however, in Revelation 6 will believe in Christ. 
There will be lots of people who will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, but many of them will be martyred for their faith. Now, we understand martyrdom today like the church never has in probably centuries because we see it, hear about it in videos and so forth from Africa and the Middle East. Many will be died, will be killed, martyred for their faith. And then Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17 says, natural disasters will increase significantly. Jesus said there will be things like earthquakes. Um, and the Revelation tells us about those kinds of things, natural disasters taking place all over this world. Um, and, and there's not going to be any place to hide. It's going to be an incredibly frightening time. But it's not all bad during this time of tribulation because Revelation 7 tells us that from the Jewish people, 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, they're Jews and they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, all right? They believed, for a while they thought they were the 144,000 and then once they passed 144,000 in number, they had to come up with another plan. It's not them speaking of Jews. 144,000 Jews will become believers in Christ and they will become evangelists, and they will scatter around the world preaching the gospel. And John writes that a massive number from every nation will be saved. But it does get worse. Creation, Revelation 8 tells us, will be judged. This planet will be judged, burning up the vegetation, destroying a third of marine life, a third of the world's ships, we're told, will be destroyed, will sink. A third of the world's fresh water will become polluted. You want to you figure out, well, how do wars really get started? Wait until there's no more fresh water and see what happens. When this river that flows down into your country, we're blocking it off at our border and you're not getting any. A third of the, of the world's fresh water will become polluted and that will kill many. The sun The moon and the stars, Revelation 8 says, will be darkened. Two evangelists will arise. Two uh, men with powers like Elijah of old who held back the rain. Like Moses of bringing plagues to the earth. Two evangelists with powers similar to theirs uh, will arise and will preach. And they'll preach unharmed. Nobody will bother them. For 1,260 days, it says. By the way, if you do your math and you're using a 360-day calendar, 1,260 days is three and a half years. They will preach. At the same time they're preaching, Jerusalem, it says, will be trampled by the nations for 42 months, which is also three and a half years. And then the two witnesses who have been preaching, finally they will be killed by Antichrist in Jerusalem. They'll be murdered. Their bodies Revelation says, will lie in the streets for three and a half days, untouched. Nobody, they'll just lay there in the streets, not given a burial. Not give, they will lay there untouched in the streets. And Alex told you about this last Sunday. He kind of stole a little bit of this thunder, but they will be seen by the world. hundred years ago and before, everybody said, how in the world is that possible? But now we know that's very possible. They'll be seen by the world, and then after three and a half days, while the world is watching, God will resurrect them. They'll come back to life. They will ascend to heaven in the clouds while their enemies watch. You can read about that in Revelation 11. Jump down to Revelation 16, and there will be plagues. 
that were very similar to Egypt's back in Moses' day, but they'll be worse, and they will make things worse. And Revelation 17 and 18 tells us that during this period of time, those who do not turn to Christ will fall for a false religion, and God will destroy that religion. The seven years of tribulation will end, we're told, when the armies of the world will converge on Israel. Can you imagine that happening? Why would anybody want to mess with a little tiny state, Israel? Why don't, you know, what, what's so important about them? But there are some people in this world who hate Israel, aren't there? The armies of the world will, will converge on Israel for the battle to end all battles. Both Old Testament and New Testament prophecies tell us it will be a world war unlike any before it. Some people say it's going to be World War III. Could be World War Four. I don't know, but it's coming. And ground zero of that battle will be a valley called Megiddo or Armageddon, and that will be the that will be the scene at the end of those seven years when that battle takes place, when the heavens open. And Jesus said in Acts chapter one, "You've seen me go up into the clouds. I'm coming back." From the clouds. That will be the scene when the heavens open and Christ returns. That's a real fast run through of the 70th week of Daniel, the time known as the tribulation. Some people divide it up, call the whole seven weeks the tribulation, the last three and a half years the great tribulation because the peace ends and things really get bad. What about Christians? Those of us who know Christ before all this happens, we believe are going to be snatched up and taken to heaven. What about us during this time? I touched on this a couple weeks ago. Let me give you a little bit more detail right now about what, what are we doing during those seven years? Because we're not on the earth. Now, there will be people who will be saved, and they're, going to, and they're pointed out in the book of Revelation to John, and John says, who is this multitude? And, and he's told these are those who are saved out of, out of great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. All these martyrs will be there. He'll see them in heaven. But what about the rest of us who have already trusted Christ? Well, the Bible tells us that every Christian will stand before Jesus and give an account. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, talks about this time. Jesus spoke of this event. Remember the parable of the talents? Are you familiar with the parable of the talents? The master had three servants and he gave money to each of the three. And he said, now go and invest it, go and use it, see what you can do with it. And you know the story, one guy invested it and it just, man, he just, he must've put it in the right place because it just, the value of it soared. The second guy invested it, not so much as the first guy, but he still got some, some, uh, some benefit from his, his investment. And then the third guy took it and buried it in the ground in the backyard Remember that story, and, and Jesus was speaking of this event called the judgment seat of Christ. And the, and the purpose of that t- parable was to say to you and me, we've been given some gifts by God to use for ministry, by God to use to reach this world. Don't ignore them, because one day we'll have to come back to the master and give an account. Paul spoke of this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. He said, our works 
will be tested by fire. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, very simply, we must all, writing to the Christians in Corinth, we must all, the non-Christians don't come here. They don't show up at this. Their judgment is later. But Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke about this in James chapter 3, verse 1, when he said, teachers, you're going to receive a greater, stricter judgment. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer of Hebrews speaks about this. When he talks about, I'll explain this in a moment, but about our pastors giving an account for, for us. So there's going to be, all these writers mention this event. And here's what those verses tell us about our judgment as Christians before Christ. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, let me say it again, you will not be judged for your sin. Why? Because all of my sin, all of your sin, Christian, was judged on Jesus on the cross. He took our judgment. He bore our shame. The handwriting of the, of the evidence of all that we had done, wrong before God, was nailed to his cross. So you will never be there. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Your judgment for sin, you've been forgiven for past, present, future sin. It's done. Well, what am I going to be judged for? Well, I'll stand before Christ at this judgment seat. And, and, and first of all, all of my excuses will be proven to be empty. All of my excuses that I've ever uttered in this life, why I couldn't do this and I couldn't serve that way and I couldn't go there and I couldn't, you know, all those excuses, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to give those excuses to Christ and we'll realize at that moment, that's all that was, was an excuse. And it will be proven to be all of them will be proven to be empty. If I grasp that principle, that one day I stand before Jesus and I will have no excuses why I didn't use my life to serve him. I'll see that if I grasp that principle and, and, and that principle that we saw in our last series about being rich, uh, that all that I have is already his. It's all his and that includes the choices I make about how I use my time. My excuses will be proven to be empty. Secondly, only what's done for Christ will remain. Paul said our works are revealed by fire. Either He said they're either going to be like wood, hay, and straw and burn up and nothing's left but a pile of ashes. Or he said they will remain. They'll be like gold and silver and costly stones and will remain and be the basis for our reward. It's like he takes everything that you and I have done as Christians and he throws it all into a fire and says, let's see what's left. Let's see what really counts. Throws it in this blazing fire, Paul says. Faithfulness in ministry and mission will be rewarded. Uh, I don't have time today, but there, there's a great study that you can do in the New Testament, but there are crowns, the Bible tells us, the New Testament writers tell us, that will be given at this judgment seat. Crowns will be given to faithful believers. Crowns mean governing positions in his kingdom, and they will be awarded to the faithful because God puts a premium on faithfulness in us. The Bible tells us one thing that God looks for in a steward, and you're all stewards of what God has given you and me. Managers. We don't own anything. He owns it. We manage it. He says the one thing God looks for in stewards is what? Faithfulness. Faithfulness doing what we're asked to do. 
being there when we're asked to be there. Teachers, James tells us, teachers will be judged on a stricter scale because of the power of their ministry in people's lives. Those who teach the word of God, whether it's pastors, whether it's seminary professors, whether it's Sunday school teachers, doesn't make any difference. Bible study leaders, those who teach will receive a stricter judgment, James says, than everybody else. Because you as a teacher, if you're a teacher, you're held to a higher standard. Because you've got to teach truth. You've got to take the word of God, as Paul told Timothy, and cut it straight and deliver it correctly. And their teachers will be given a stricter judgment. Then Hebrews in chapter, chapter 13, verse 17, I think is the scripture. He tells us that our pastors... We have five pastors in the Exit Church. Good news and bad news for you guys. Um, uh, The good news is you're going to be there because of your faith in Christ. But the scary news, I don't want to say bad news, is that we are going to, we've been charged by Christ to watch out over the souls of our congregation, of the flock that Christ has placed us in. We are, as pastors, going to give account for each one in our church as to their service to the Lord. We're going to be witnesses, if you will, at the judgment seat for what you've done with the life that Christ has given you. And and the writer of Hebrews says, so, right to the the Christian says, so here, let me give you a clue. Let that experience up there, giving an account, let that be a joy for them. Let let that be a time when they see you come up and he calls your name. Let them have a big smile on their face. He rocked it, Jesus. All right, all right. Let that be a joy for them. If you're a spectator here and now, I think here's the point. If you're a spectator here and now in this life and you will not serve, you've, you kind of waste in life, you're not taking it seriously, the, 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 the abilities, the gifts that God has given you, whether they be financial, whether they be spiritual gifts, whether they be your talents, if you don't take those things seriously and use them for Christ, if you're a spectator here and now, you'll be a spectator in the kingdom. What do you mean? You'll be looking in, but you won't be joining in. You'll be there, but there'll be nothing. You'll look at your pile of ashes, and there'll be nothing to celebrate. So this tells me, you've heard this statement before. This tells me as much as anything in the scripture, this life that you and I live right now really is dress rehearsal for the kingdom. It really, truly is. If you're a spectator now, if you sit on the bench, if you stand on the sidelines, you're going to be doing the same in the kingdom. A second thing that will be happening in these seven years is we'll be celebrating our reunion with Christ with a feast. Some of you, this is maybe the best news about heaven. There will be food in heaven. All right? It will be a grand feast in heaven. Uh, Dear, dear lady, uh, mother of, of my lifelong best friend passed away. I can't remember how many years it's been now. And when I got the news that she passed away, I, I, I wrote a blog post about her because she, was, she used her gift of hospitality and she used her gift of serving by taking her talent of cooking and giving that to the church. And I went to many, many meals at the church, many, many meals in her home. Uh, and she's a Mexican-American lady. And 
taught me to love Mexican food. I, I will be eternally grateful to this woman because when Gail and I first got married, we moved back to California and I introduced her to this dear lady, took her to her house and said to her very simply, Mrs. Z, teach her how to cook Mexican food. <laughs> and she did. And Gail, has, Gail makes the best refried beans this side of the Mississippi River. Right? Some of you have had them. You know that's true. And I wrote this blog post and the blog post was titled, there will be tamales in heaven. <laughs> there will be food. Andy, say amen. 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 You just won't have any pictures to take of them, put them on your Facebook page, but there will be food. We're celebrating in that feast our reunion with Christ, literally our marriage with him. It's a wedding feast. You see, our relationship in, with Christ is compared in Scripture to the relationship between a bride and a groom. It's one of self-sacrificing love on his part, submission and devotion on ours. So that following that time of judgment and that time of reward, there will be a marriage celebration and a feast like the universe has never known. And when the celebration concludes, when the party's over, and Jesus rises up and said, okay, I think we've eaten enough. Enough celebration. We've got another job to do. He's going to stand, and we will accompany Jesus back to earth to set up his millennial reign as King of kings and Lord of lords as first he comes to Jerusalem, to Israel, and ends the battle of Armageddon. How do I get ready for this time? How do I get ready for the time of tribulation for what's going to take place in those seven years? Let me just spend a few minutes rapidly giving you some thoughts. Number one, Christian, invest your energy in sharing the gospel, not looking for signs. Boy, so many people get caught up in this stuff and that's all they talk about. They study it. They read about it. And they never share the gospel of Jesus with anybody. The Bible tells us we shouldn't be ignorant about what it says about the end time. So learn it. That's why this series, learn it. But move on to the main thing because the main thing is not that. The main thing is that we still live around people who don't know Jesus. There are still people in this world who have never heard of salvation. They've never heard the gospel. We have a responsibility to share that with them. Invest in sharing the gospel. Don't get so caught up in this one doctrine because it's so fascinating, and it is, that you lose sight of why Jesus came and why there is a heaven and that there is a hell and that there is a judgment ahead for those who don't know Christ. You see, the only thing, <clears throat> the only thing that you will take with you when you die are your righteous acts, the things that will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and the souls of those you've brought to Christ. Nothing else will last. So invest your life with eternity in mind. And if you sense God, <clears throat> please hear me, if you sense God leading you to go somewhere else in the world to share the gospel, then you do whatever you have to do to make it happen and go. Go. Secondly, prioritize your life to put Christ first. Prioritize your life. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
Make that number one. And then what? All these other things. And he had been talking about food and clothing and the birds and how God takes all these other things that we worry about, he said, will be taken care of. They'll be added to you. The judgment seat of Christ will reveal what our priorities have been. And if I'm going to be rewarded by Christ, if I'm going to hear the words, again, going back to the parable of the talents, if I'm going to hear the words and I want to hear them not only for me, I want to hear them for you. I want to hear Jesus, because I'm going to be hanging around, remember? I want to hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words for you. It's going to reveal it all. I need to put first things first then. He's not going to ask me. He's not going to say, Rick, how much money did you make in your life? Unless he follows it up. And how much did you give back to me? That could be a question. He might show me if I was generous with what I had. He's not going to ask me, Rick, did your kid make the travel team? But he might show me when my child accepted Christ as Savior, and, or he might show me when my child rejected him because of my example. It will be all about what I do and what I do with the time and resources I've been given in this life. So maybe you and I, thinking about these things, maybe it be, might be good to sit down and make some difficult choices about our time and our budgets. Did I spend more time wasting time than spending time in his word and developing my relationship with Christ through prayer? You see where the weeping and gnashing of teeth might come from when Jesus says, you wasted what I gave you. How many of us who know Jesus at that day, good, this is going to be the, and this is where I believe the Bible says and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because somebody said, there won't be any crying in heaven, then how can he wipe away tears? I think the regret in heaven will be momentarily, but it'll only be very short-lived. But how many of us will know Jesus, will have known Jesus' will, and at that day we, will, we would wish, God, could I just go back and relive some years and change my priorities? It'll be too late. Number three, knowing that these days are coming, be as generous as possible in giving to reach the world. Here at Nags Head Church, we send a significant percentage of our giving to support missionaries around the world. And some of us from this church have and will choose to go ourselves. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not me. But we can choose to support those who do. And then lastly, most importantly, number four, have a no-so salvation. No, I know. First John chapter 5, you can know you have everlasting life. Jesus told a Jewish leader, a religious man, in John chapter 3, he said, Nicodemus, unless you're spiritually reborn by putting your belief in me, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And like most Jews of the time, this man Nicodemus, who was a leader of the Jews, he knew the Bible well, he practiced his religion He assumed that because he was a Jew, he's one of God's chosen people, he had automatic entry. And Jesus said, not so, you have to have a new birth. See, it's not about your religion. It's not about your parents' religion. It's not about your status or your position. 
It's about embracing Christ with your faith and fully trusting in him. It's not, here. maybe the most important thing I could say to you this morning, it's not good enough to guess. It's not something you want to be guessing about. You know you're going to heaven? Well, I hope so. Ooh. I don't, you know, that, those words scare me. When I hear people say that, and I, I say to them, don't you want to know? I think everybody really does. It's not something you want to be guessing about when the trumpet sounds. And as always, we're here to help you know that your eternity is forever settled. If you want to know this morning, you say, Rick, I don't know. I want to know today. When we finish up here, I'm going to be hanging out right here. I, I would love to open up God's word and talk with you and, and explain to you. And it won't take long, but I don't want you to leave here unless you know, because I don't know what will take place tomorrow or next week or next year. I do not know. In your life or in all this prophetic future events, I have no idea when things are going to happen, but I do know this. Today you can know Jesus as your Savior. Pray with me. Lord, we've flown through an awful lot of stuff this morning. And I hope that maybe that will encourage some of us to go back and sit down with our notes and go back and read some of these things and and study them and, and be familiar with them because they are going to happen. But Lord, most of all, I pray that as Christians, we we will be inspired of the necessity of sharing the gospel with our friends and our neighbors, our families, people that we come in contact with who don't yet know you. We look forward to, as Christians, we look forward to the marriage feasts of the Lamb. We look forward, Father, to the time of reward at your judgment seat. I pray, God, that you will prepare us that we'll realize I only have this much time in my life. I don't want to waste it. And if there's someone here today, Lord, that does not know, they're hoping so, they're guessing so, they're working really hard towards something they cannot earn, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.